the gospel. It's really now the eighth week out of eight. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of an, uh, an idea of where we're going so that you can have a heads up. Next week will be um, Praise and Testimony Sunday. And as I asked you last week, some of you may not have been here, so here it is again. Please come prepared with uh, some sort of short uh, praise that uh, and for what the Lord has been doing in your lives. If you want to prepare that ahead of time or just go on the fly and and just speak, that would be great. We're going to have a mic passing around, and instead of me preaching, I want to have the opportunity for you to share what it is God is doing in your lives and the things that you are thankful for for Him. Uh, Now next week's going to be a little bit unique in a different sense as well. And it was just a few days ago at one of our board of overseer meetings that uh, the board and I were discussing uh, some of the things that we want to mark and characterize our church. One of them being, we want to be an intergenerational church. We want to not try to program generations out and away from one another. And so uh, that's evidenced here in the fact that there is a large range of generations. Um, Next week it's going to get a little larger, and it will be unique for us. Uh, We are going to welcome in uh, all of the, the children that are not in the nursery and up. Now, that means that it's probably going to be filled with a lot of distractions, And who knows, my two-year-old might start cheering just like she did at the business meeting last week. And it just, it may happen. And if it happens, let's praise God for it to happen because there is life in this church. There is young life in this church. And to be an intergenerational church, it doesn't make sense every Sunday for us to bring in our two-year-olds. But for us to do so on a morning when those that are their parents or grandparents or certainly people that they would, Lord willing, be looking up to, for them to share about the things the Lord has done, uh, that, that could be a powerful statement and witness to those young ones. And we have an opportunity to fulfill some commandments in the scriptures uh, for the older generations to teach the younger. Uh, Now, in theory, all of us have a generation that's younger than us. Some of us just have lots of generations that are younger than us, and others of us have just a few. Uh, But nevertheless, it's an opportunity for all of us to, to tell of what the Lord has done and is doing in our lives, to celebrate His grace and mercy and forgiveness, and to do so in the presence of all the ages. So, next week, probably just need to not come thinking it's going to be this awesome special, quiet morning. I think it'll be awesome and it's special, and it probably is not going to be quiet at all. Uh, So let's just come prepared for that, but let's celebrate life. Let's celebrate the fact the Lord has given our church a whole lot of young ones. I was watching all of them leave, and I was thinking, good night, there is a lot of girls, and and it, it is something else. Uh, yeah, you guys, and I'm bringing two, and uh, yeah. Uh, it, but let's, let's celebrate the fact that God has given these gifts to us, and, uh, and, and we, can, we can praise and give testimony for His work in our lives in their presence. So that's next week, and then the week after we hop into Advent, um, and it maybe felt a little bit like we were there this morning singing Joy to the World, and just to let you know, I did not request that, but I'm very glad for it, and we hop into Advent the first Sunday in December and carry that through, including our Christmas Eve service. Uh, we'll wrap up Advent on December 28th, and then um, launch into some new things in the 
um, year 2015. We're looking at uh, going into the book of Mark and just uh, really sitting in Mark for, uh, for a while as we walk through that. What we've done up to this point is, is really be pretty topical in the way that we've approached the scriptures. Um, some of those reasons are for calendars. Uh, some of those reasons are just my desire to try to give us some language to uh, have a, an ongoing conversation in the scriptures with. Um, and then uh, come 15 in January, uh, we're going to hit into Mark, and we're just going to take uh, a chunk at a time and just walk through the book of Mark uh, through the year 2015. Uh, Lord willing, that'll be profitable for us. It'll be for His glory and fame, and uh, we'll all be benefited that way. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to hop in and look at a, a vitally important thing this morning. Um, and we'll get after it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that Christ came. He took on flesh. He, he lived the perfect life that I was incapable of living. He died the death that I deserved to die, and yet he rose from the grave victoriously, and death could not hold him, and he is no longer in the grave, and salvation is found in him and in him alone. God, thank you for your grace that's at work in all of our lives. God, thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for your sanctifying grace. Thank you for the promise of of your grace being fully and finally completed that the good work you have begun will be finished. God, as we think through the idea and what you have said in regards to worship, I pray that you would come and be our teacher. God, I pray that you would guide and guard my words, that they may be accurate to your word. I pray that this morning as we look at your word, we may, we may exalt your son. And so Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you'd come and do that. Jesus said that you would come and you would shine the spotlight on him. And so may that be true here in this place, here and now. And it's in the good name of Jesus I ask these things. Amen. If you have Bibles, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be a little bit. But I got to be real honest with you. We got a lot of work to do in the scriptures this morning. And, and we're going to try to try to probably condense what would be better a two or three part series into one. And, and here, here's my goal. I, I'm not under any false pretense thinking that all of us are going to walk out of here with a full understanding of worship at the end of the morning. But what, if, if we can do this, I feel like we've accomplished an objective. If we can give ourselves a language to begin moving forward to understand worship with then we've, we've had a good morning. And what I'd like to do is I'd even like to spend some extended time showing you the relationship between worship and temptation. Because the scriptures are going to have some things for us there that may help you make sense out of temptation because it stands over and against worship. And so as we launch in, we've got work to do, and we're going to try to do it in a way that makes sense for all of us. But let's do a quick recap. Tyler, hit that first slide for me. Over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at the gospel, and this is where we began. This was the first three weeks. And this is why as we wrap up and think about worship, which really can be a broad category that unites all seven other of the weeks we've looked at in this series, this is what we've been saying is going on. So we've been set free from sin. We've become slaves to God. We've been justified. We've been born again. Before God's throne, He declares us and considers us and sees us as perfect and holy and righteous. And that leads to 
The fruit of justification leads to sanctification. This process of becoming holy. If what we are is holy, if what we are is perfect, sanctification is the process of becoming what we are. And the end of sanctification is eternal life or glorification. That what God has begun in us and the purpose he proposed and set forth to accomplish in us, namely that we would be conformed to the image of his son, he is guaranteed will be complete because the end of sanctification, the end of life lived in the submission to and exaltation of Jesus Christ is eternal life. Now sanctification is not the process of working to be qualified to be saved. Sanctification is the work of God in us, on us, to make us look like Jesus because we are saved. And there will be a full and final completion to that when we meet Him in glory. And so the gospel is going to save us from sin, and it's going to radically reform and reorient our lives to live for God's glory, no longer for ourselves. And that's what we looked at a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, that he came and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. See, there's this radical reorientation that happens when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we are justified by faith, by his grace, and begin no longer living for ourselves, but for his glory. And so we become, in increasing measure, God-glorifying worshipers rather than idol-loving worshipers. And one of the big, big ideas for us to try to land on this morning and understand is that worship is a lifestyle, regardless who or what you worship. And what we're going to see in Romans 1, just in a few minutes, is that all people at all times, whether unbelievers or believers, are worshiping. That's what the scriptures are going to tell us. Worship is a lifestyle regardless who or what you worship. Now, Christian worship obviously has its focus and aim at Christ. But worship in and of itself is something done by all people at all times, everywhere. It is a lifestyle. We are always worshiping. So in some ways, I want to I try to boot you off the horse or off the, the place that you think worship is what we just simply do here. I want to kind of kick you off that pedestal if that's your perspective and hopefully do it in a loving, gracious way. But it's not, this is not the sum total of worship. Worship did not start when you walked through those double doors, and it will not end when you walk through those double doors. It is something that has been, in one sense or another, happening all the time this morning. The question for us is, who is the object of that worship been? Or what has the object of that worship been? Let's define worship. I think Tyler's got a slide for us there. Now, this is not Christian worship. Let's just put a definition at worship, though. The exaltation of and submission to something or someone. We're going to give a definition of Christian worship as we continue. But worship in general, the exaltation of 
in submission to something or someone. I've got a book on my shelf written by a man whose name is, is Gary Laborman. Uh, that probably means nothing to you, but the book title is Sacred Matters. And in the book, he traces through, he actually begins with the, the, the big idea that, that Americans are, regardless if they go to church or not, are always pursuing the sacred, as he would term it, uh, in all areas of life. And so he walks through, and he's got chapters titled Sex. He's got chapters titled Movies. He's got chapters titled Star Wars. He's got chapters titled Sports. And he goes right on. He's got a chapter on Graceland and Elvis. He, I mean, he gets after it, and he traces through this big idea that everybody everywhere at all times is worshiping or is pursuing the sacred. The objects of that pursuit for his study— was football. It was the temples that exist not too far from here in D.C. and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Indianapolis. I mean, these are shrines to, to professional sports. There are going to be temples, and, and he, he just tracks through this. Now, it, it, the point that worship is a lifestyle is not true because Gary Laberman said it was true. It's true because the scriptures say it was true. But here's a man who does not have a relationship with the Lord, who is observing culture and recognizing things the scriptures recognize. So he has a quote which I think is profound. Religious sensibilities sink deeply into and permeate everything about who we are, how we live, driving personal, community, and national attempts to create order out of disorder, meaning in the face of suffering, and hope when all seems lost. It's his definition of the pursuit of the sacred. And it'll happen whether you're a red state or a blue state, whether you're a a Democrat or Republican, whether you like Elvis or you could care less about it. He just says, look, somebody somewhere at all times is worshiping, and these are the major aspects we see this play out. Well, this isn't true because he said it's true. It's true because the scriptures say it's true. So Romans 1 is where the scriptures will say that. And the Apostle Paul is writing, and he is speaking about unbelievers, and he is speaking about the condition of their hearts and the lifestyle that they live. Begin with me in verse 18, and we'll look at it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Now pause right there, because we're going into a week of thanksgiving. The scriptures are going to give us a way to understand a a characteristic of those who are believers and are not. Believers give thanks to God. Unbelievers do not. And so in some sense, and this could be a really helpful question for you as you seek to share your faith with coworkers. What are you thankful for? That's such an appropriate question this week, is it not? Hey, what are you thankful for? Have you ever thanked God for anything? The scriptures say that unbelievers don't acknowledge God. They don't give thanks to God. That may help you clue into the condition of their heart spiritually. 
and give you some insight into wisdom and to where to go next. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor do they give Him thanks, but they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what Paul says as he wraps up and gives really a summary to the lifestyle of unbelievers? He says they worshipped. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things. They exchanged the worship of the Creator to serve the created. Now, my Bible's got the words worship and served. Interestingly enough, that word served elsewhere in the book of Romans is translated into English as worshiped. Now, we can just understand that why the writers wouldn't do that to us in this verse because it would render they worshiped and worshiped. And we kind of go, well, that sounds strange and oddly repetitive. But here's, here's the big idea. The first one that we have as worship in 1, 24 and 25 is the idea of an internal attitude. The second word that, that the ESV is going to render serve, that elsewhere will render worshiped, is an external action. So you have both parts being spoken to. So although they, or because they exchanged the truth about God, they internally had an attitude of worship towards the creature, and externally they served and made different things with their hands that came out of their hearts. Worship is a lifestyle. It's happening at all times, in all places, everywhere. Unbelievers are worshiping. The scriptures just said they're worshiping. They're not only internally having an attitude of worship, they're externally performing certain rites and duties that accord with that worship. So not only do we need to kind of get ourselves out of thinking that worship is what happened when you walked through those double doors, we need to also expand our understanding of worship that it really is the exaltation and submission to something or someone. Question being then, what are you living for? Are you living for the glory of the Creator? Or are you living for the created? Are you exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images representing what had been and has been created? So I said the gospel transforms and radically reorients our lives. And it does. And as unbelievers, we were worshipers. And now as believers, we continue to be worshipers because God made us as worshipers. And this language can be really helpful in understanding then how temptation comes into play. Because in some senses, temptation is the invitation to not worship God. 
temptation is the invitation to not worship God. And we see this track through both the Old and New Testament across the landscape of the Scriptures. I think Tyler's got 1 John two fifteen to 17 on the screen. But this verse, these verses will be very helpful for us. And I want you to see some of the categories that John gives. I have them underlined for you. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some of you are going to have a translation that says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And and John here in the New Testament gives us some categories that begin to help us understand how we see and understand temptation and worship across the landscape of the scriptures. And so go with me to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve created perfectly. The word worship is not in the first three chapters of Genesis. I don't think it's a far conclusion to make that Adam and Eve as perfect human beings literally talking to God, having God talk to them, being given divine mandates by God to work and to rest and to keep and to be fruitful and multiply, I think we could put the word worship in there and we could see that Adam and Eve created as perfect human beings were created as worshipers. You and I have not been created to worship. Been created as a worshiper. And those differences are important. Unbelievers are worshiping. Worships the exaltation and submission to someone or something. But let's see what the temptation that Satan brings before Eve. So we're going to see some of these things come out as well. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she also, or she took and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was there in the background watching his wife be tempted by the devil and saying nothing. But did you see the three categories Satan came to Eve and tempted her with? Or what she reasoned the temptation was then going to give her? It was, verse 6, good for food. Desires of the flesh. It's a delight to the eyes. Desires of the eyes. It was able to make one wise. I think we might be able to render that pride of life. See, the the temptation that you and I face, the invitation to not worship the immortal God, is ultimately going to fill and fall into one of those three categories. And the desires of the flesh and the promise there is that it will make you feel good. Go and do it. Exchange the glory of the immortal God and worship the creator or the creature rather than the creator because you're going to feel good. 
How often does temptation bring that promise with it? Oh, it'll feel good until you yield and then you feel like dirt. The temptation or the way that it's, it's the desires of the eyes, it, it'll, it'll make you look good. Go spend your life chasing a car. Go spend your life chasing whatever. It'll make you look good. Desires of the eyes. Desired to make one wise, it'll make you feel important. You see here that as John gives us these three categories in 1 John 2, that temptation comes, and these are the things of the world. You see Eve being tempted in the very same way and reasoning in her mind that she's about to exchange the glory of the immortal God for a created thing, this being a fruit or her own desires of the flesh or her own desires of the eyes or her own desires for pride of life. I mean, that that was the exchange that was made. And then she takes and eats and gives it to Adam, who is our federal representative, the one that stood as the headship, the head of really humanity, and sin enters the world, and the whole thing that we know is fractured because this man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something that was created. Now, we're not going to go there, but I want you to write in your notes if you're taking notes. Just remember in your mind, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. You will see these exact three categories play themselves out in the temptations of Christ. Turn these bread into stone, or turn this stone into bread. You're hungry, eat. It's lust of the flesh. Here's all the kingdoms. Bow down before me. You can have them. It's lust of the eyes. Jump off the temple mount. Because didn't the scriptures say the angels would come and they would lift you up and nothing would happen to you? Show yourself, Jesus. Show how awesome you are. Pride of life. So these invitations and temptation yielding itself and playing itself as an invitation to exchange the glory of the immortal God and to worship the created rather than the creator could be very helpful for us in giving us a language to maybe understand what is happening when we feel temptation or what is happening when a tempting offer is made to us. Let me just give you some examples. Alcoholism is not simply just drinking too much. It's worshiping yourself for whatever the reason that might be and exchanging the glory of the God for a cheap substitute and perhaps doing so with cheap beer. Pornography is not simply lusting. It's worshiping and gratifying the desires of your flesh over and above what God has commanded and settling for a cheap imitation of what he intends rather than enjoying the fullness of what he intends in marriage. Aiming your life And the pursuit of material things can ultimately be the worship of those things. So are you living for a car or a boat or a house? Are you living for God? It's not wrong to own a house. It's not wrong to own a boat. It's not wrong to own a car. But do those things own you? What are you pursuing? 
Being a jerk of a boss or a husband is pridefully exalting yourself over and above God and not submitting to his commands to be kind and loving, to be a servant leader. You are worshiping yourself or your career rather than the immortal God. You can worship your kids. You can allow them to function as little, little gods in your house that they, they need to be appeased. You got you to gotta cater to them because, oh, what, what if the gods get angry? I mean, we, we've been there when our kids get angry that they, they throw temper tantrums and, and that, that, those are moments for loving discipline not, not, not giving in and yielding and, and setting them up in our homes to be these little gods but by doing so you're exchanging the glory of the created for a creature and you're probably going to be the huge part of their life becoming a train wreck when they become adults and they think the world's about them when God's the one we worship and exalt above all others, all other relationships take their rightful place. My marriage begins to not only function in a healthy way when I don't make my wife a God, but it actually can function as an act of worship. My relationship with my kids not only begins to function in a healthy way, but it can function as an act of worship. When God's the one we worship and exalt above all others, temptation to exchange God's glory for cheap imitations can be identified and met with the weapons of the warfare that Jesus has given us. And we can see temptation for what it is, that invitation to exchange God's glory. And we can do what he commanded us to do, to draw near to the throne of grace, for in the time of need you will find grace and mercy. For we have a high priest who is not, or who is able to sympathize with us because he had been tempted in every way that we are. The fact that these categories exist not only in Genesis 3 but in Matthew 4 and in 1 John tell us that Jesus was tempted in the very same way that we are. He was tempted with his flesh. He was tempted with his eyes. He was tempted to submit to pride and he yet was without sin and so he is a sympathizing high priest because he's experienced it perhaps to an even greater degree because temptation never yielded for him. He never gave in. It never yielded. So let's define Christian worship. Christian worship is glorifying God in every area, facet, and aspect of life by exalting and submitting to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that, that just sounds like a lot of words, and it's Trinitarian, and it's that way on purpose, because we serve a triune God. But notice the consistency between the two definitions, that it is the exaltation of and submission to someone or something. Christian worship is the exaltation of and the submission to Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. That's Christian worship. One scholar said this, worship becomes the category in which we order everything in our lives. Whatever we do, whether it's just simply eating or drinking, what we say in business or in the home or in the church, we do all to the glory of God. That's worship. And when we come together, we engage in worship in a corporate fashion. Grace Brethren missionary Bruce Triplehorn, who's down in Brazil, wrote a book of like seven or eight hundred pages on worship, and he says this, it's not singing, nor is it a religious event, nor is it something isolated from our daily lives. 
Religious people tend to equate worship with music. They divide their existence into religious and secular activities and don't see the relationship between worship and their daily lives. Worship is a, is a lifestyle. It's not simply what you do when you walk through this door. It's not simply something that stops when you walk out of this door. It is a lifestyle. It is not what happens when we sing. And a few years ago, and by a few, I mean like 15 to 20 years ago, the contemporary worship movement that hit the landscape of evangelical Christianity that took a bunch of millennials or generation Xers and it took them dissatisfied with old archaic expressions of Christianity and said, we'd, we'd like something a little more vibrant. They introduced all this new music into the church. And oddly enough, the, the first contemporary song was written in 1971. It was set to, uh, it, was, it was out of Matthew 6, and it was, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. Now, here's what's just odd about it. It was a contemporary worship song, but it's hymn number 42 in the hymnal in front of you. You had this generation that introduced music into the church to try to contemporize the church, but what they did and where they didn't serve any of us well is then they then defined and equated that music with worship. And so it's not uncommon to hear, all right, we're going to worship now. The band's going to come. It's not uncommon for you to maybe have even gone home. Well, how was worship this morning? Well, you mean, how did the band do? We can equate worship and music. Now, we, we worship through music. The Bible is filled, continuously filled with examples and commands to sing. So it's not wrong for us to do so, but it is not the sum total. And rather than us define worship as music, we need to see that it's all of life. That non-believers themselves are ultimately worshiping something. They're worshiping some created thing. It may be themselves. It may be a boat. It may be their kids. It, it may, whatever it may be, it is worship. And the Christian has been radically reoriented to no longer live for himself, but for the one who died for him. We've been radically transformed to no longer live for ourselves, to no longer exchange the glory of the immortal God for images that represent the created things, but rather to glorify him. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10.30, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in all that you do, do all for the glory of God. To the meal you have when you go home today or you go out today. It's worship. As you give thanks for that meal or you are appreciative of that meal, we can go back to Romans 1. Is it thanks to God? It's worship. So then what do we do when we, when we gather? Because gathering is important. And that's the second part of this. We have a lifestyle of worship. Our lives are to be lived as worshipers of God. But we gather, and we gather as worshipers to worship. We gather as worshipers to worship. And so when we gather, we gather to continue what should have been taking place all along. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, they're, they're not the start and stop points of worship. 
They're not the start and stop points of worshiping God, I should say, to be precise. You don't come in, you don't worship God for an hour, and then you go and worship something else. Now, the exaltation of and submission to Jesus Christ should be what characterizes all aspects of our lives. And now if we try to stitch together different things that we had looked at time over the past couple weeks, we'll see that when we fail, when we yield to that temptation, and we go 1 John 1.8, that, that we, we rightly recognize that we have sinned because His truth is in us, we also stand on and claim 1 John 1.9, that He is faithful and just to con- cleanse and forgive of all unrighteousness. See, there's something about the gathering, there's something about our interaction with each other that, that does say and gives freedom to recognize that, you know what? I haven't done this perfectly. But God's grace is great in the midst of my failures. So let me submit to you, I think, the three big reasons why we gather as worshipers for corporate worship. We'll call what we do here, what we're doing now, as corporate worship. So we gather corporately to worship and to do this. And the first one will be on the screen. We gather for Christ-centered exaltation. We we gather for Christ-centered exaltation. Now, we should gather as those who have been exalting Christ all week. But we gather to do it together. And the scriptures are full with examples and exhortations to do just that. We gather to sing together because music does have a unique ability to connect our minds and our hearts with what is true from God's word. So worship's not this feeling that you get when you sing or when you raise your hands. And I'm not anti-feeling. Like, I love the feeling. I don't know what it's like for you. For me, it's a little bit of a butterfly. It's a little bit of a tingly thing that goes happening. And like, I, I love that. But if you look for that, odds are that's what you're worshiping. You're singing for that. And I can give you that by way of example because there was almost an entire year in college that I came to chapel every morning thinking and hoping, I hope I feel something. Now, it's not wrong to feel. But I sang to feel. I didn't sing because Jesus is worthy of my singing. So whether we feel or we don't, we exalt. We do so with Christ-centered focus. We pray to exalt Christ. We give to exalt Christ. Secondly, there's Christ-centered exhortation. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They came together, they devoted themselves to the the men who would ultimately then write the New Testament and said, teach us. We're told by Paul in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable and useful for teaching and correction and reproof and training so that the man of God or the woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. There is a Christ-centered exhortation that takes place when we gather together. Lastly, we gather together for Christ-centered encouragement. 
And this may be the one that doesn't happen nearly to the same degree outside the church walls as it does inside the church walls. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit, but to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's something that happens when we gather that we are able to look at one another and we are able to go, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And see, that, that, that begins to now meet well and marry well with the fact that worship's not a feeling. The feelings may be there, but, but let's just be real honest. You, you could have had a week of worship and you could walk through these doors and into this place haggard and weary. I saw it this morning in our CE class. You know what then I saw next? I saw one woman walk to another woman. She put her arm around her. They hugged, and then they walked out, and they were encouraging one another. We gather for that Christ-centered encouragement. We gather to say, put your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. The temptation might be strong, but God's grace is greater. I think I've shared this story with some of you before, but I, I love this story. It was like nine months ago. I went out to lunch with a guy that was in our small group. He was living together with his fiance, And as the small group leader, as a pastor, uh, I, I just had to have that conversation with him. Had no idea how it was going to go. Had no idea if, like, if I was going to get the soup thrown across the table back at me. But we sat and I said, hey man, I've got to have this conversation. And his response was, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I, I, I want to move out. I, I, I know that what God has for me is not this. And, and here's the thing. I don't know where to go. And my family tells me that I'm abandoning her if I do. I said, man, can I help you try to find a place? He's like, yeah, that'd be great. I said, well, let's make a plan. And then I said to him, hey, this is probably... And not only going to be one of the hardest decisions that you have ever made. There was two kids in the mix as well. But this may be a decision that only the church understands. He had already told me his family was accusing him of abandonment. And here I am saying, hey man, let's do things the right way. Let's do things God's way. Let's, let, it's going to be a couple months but until your wedding day comes, but let's do it. And you lead that woman and you lead those kids to honor and exalt Christ. And you do the hard thing as the leader of that home. And you make the hard decision that's for obedience. And he did so in the face of a family not supporting him but he had a church family that did. Talk about Christ-centered encouragement. Talk about a week where he would have gone Monday through Saturday, perhaps Sunday afternoon to Sunday morning with his family, getting on his case for the fact that he moved out and he said yes to God. And he comes Sunday morning and believers are able to speak into his life and say, brother, don't give up. Don't give up. You keep your eyes on Jesus. Because he is worthy. It's Christ-centered encouragement. And we gather for that. 
We gather to worship through that. We gather as worshipers to do that. It's powerful. It's powerful. So the gospel transforms our lives so that we are not transforms our lives so that we are God-glorifying worshipers. And we gather as these worshipers to exalt and to submit to Jesus Christ. So we have Christ-centered singing and praise. We have Christ-centered prayers. We have Christ-centered preaching. We have Christ-centered giving. We have Christ-centered meet-your-neighbor time. We have Christ-centered testimony videos because He's the one that we exalt and submit to. A few weeks ago, we ended with this song. It was, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. Full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I talk about the relationship between temptation and worship. That temptation is an invitation to not worship God. Christian worship is putting our eyes on Jesus. It's the exaltation of and submission to Christ in all things by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us to not only enable and empower that obedience, but to guarantee the good work God began in us, He will be faithful to complete. So as Danny and I were talking about how to end this morning, kind of felt like it might be a little cliche to sing. And it was like, well, we could sing songs that talk about singing, not being worship. And it was like, well, so it may just be anything that we do. It kind of feels cliche. But this is a gigantic category that begins to, to order rightly the other aspects in the last seven weeks, it, it should rightly order our lives. And so the big question for us to spend some time with the Lord asking and praying about is, are our lives exalting and submitting to Christ in all things? See the object? Is he our focus? Is he the one that our, eye, our, our lives are aiming to exalt? There's temptation everywhere to do just the opposite and exchange the glory of the immortal God for something that has been created. And it's a temptation as old as the garden. And it will be the way that we are tempted until the Lord comes to take us or until we go home to be with Him. But that question should be the one that sits and maybe settles. Am I worshiping Christ? Am I exalting Christ? Am I submitting to Christ? Does this decision submit to Christ? Does this decision make Christ look good? Asking those questions are tremendous ways 
for us to navigate temptation when we see it, but us, for us to also live as worshipers. To live as worshipers who are worshiping Jesus. Not worshipers who are worshiping something else. So this will be hard work for us. Hard work for us. But God's grace abounds in the midst. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us that when we were, when we were worshiping created things, you saved us, you transformed us, you reoriented our lives to, to worship and glorify you. And God, I pray that as we live as worshipers, that you may help us to see that, that our lives, all things, all decisions, every decision, should be made for the exaltation of Jesus and in the submission to him. God, thank you for cleansing and forgiving us of the times that that is not true of us. And may we be quick to seek that forgiveness when we, when we fall short. God, I pray that you would continue to transform this gathering of worshipers that we that we gather for. God, I pray that Jesus would be the sole focus, that he would be the object of our exaltation, that he would be the object of our exhortation, and that we would seek to encourage one another to not give up, to hold fast our confession. God, thanks for even the glimpses of seeing that at work this morning. So we thank you for the day that you've given us. We pray that you'd give us the grace we need to live this day for your glory. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great morning. I'm dismissed.